Good morning, church. That was a, a wonderful time of singing together. We please open your Bibles with me to the book of James. We're in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10 today. Um, but I think let's read together chapter 4 from maybe verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that our, our pride stands in the way of so much blessing, and joy, and peace, and goodness, and grace from you. And yet every day we struggle with prideful hearts. We know, Lord, that we have an opportunity now as we come to your word. There is immense blessing in your word. There is grace for us today as we come before you into your presence. And so we ask with sincerity in our hearts that you would make us humble for these moments. Help us to be humble before you that we may hear from your word and that you may bring life to us again, we pray. Amen. In his commentary, Kent Hughes tells the story of an artist who apparently submitted a painting of Niagara Falls to an art gallery for display. And they accepted this painting and put it on display, but the artist had neglected to give it a title. And they, the gallery struggled to get hold of the artist to ask for a title. And so one of the uh, workers at the gallery decided to supply one themselves. And they insightfully came up with these words, a painting on Niagara Falls, with this title, More to Follow, More to Follow. The old waterfall spilling 3,000 tons of water per second, second after second, minute after minute, day after day, without fail. It's just been there for millennia, pouring its water, more than abundant for the needs of the ecosystems and the people and those below. It is such a fitting analogy 
of the grace of God in our lives. We sing a song here, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. It's a quote from the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs in his work, A Bruised Reed. He said this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Christian, can there be a truth more comforting than that? Whatever sin there is in the life of the believer, whatever failure to act and to speak and to think in a holy manner, there is more mercy in Christ. We don't even know how high the mountain of our sin actually goes, but the mountain of Christ's grace is always higher. It is a comforting truth that James has for the church, really, that really needs it. This letter has been hard-hitting so far. He's writing to a people, by and large, that seem to be struggling with spiritual consistency. They lack a spiritual um, integrity, a wholehearted devotion to Christ and the world, and it's evident in different ways, symptoms that James has addressed one after another. If you remember in chapter, four, uh, chapter one, he spoke about trials. He, that's where he started, the trials that this church was facing, severe testing uh, that the church was going through. And he addressed the trouble that they were having in approaching God in their prayer lives and coming to God with unwavering hearts to ask for wisdom. He said, you're welcome to come and ask, but you must come and ask, not being double-minded. You must come with faith. Not like ships that are tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. He then spoke to them about the need to stop listening only to the word. Stop only hearing the word, but actually put it into practice. In chapter 2, he addressed the favoritism that was going on in the congregation. A symptom um, of their inconsistent hearts. They were motivated by the fear of man, not by the fear of God. In chapter 3, he spoke about their tongues, their double speak. How can you praise God in one breath and then in the next breath curse the brother made in his image? He addressed their relationships. They're not walking in wisdom from above that is peaceable and gentle, open to reason. Instead, they are choosing the wisdom of the world, selfish and envious. And as we saw last week, he addressed quarrels and fights that existed in the church, plaguing the church. And evidence, James says, of passions warring within them and out of control. And so finally, in chapter 4, verse 4, he gives this word we saw last week, one commentator called calls it one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance we find anywhere in the New Testament. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Christian, here's your problem, James is saying. You want to live and say, I'm in Christ, but you are being unfaithful to him. You don't seem to understand what it means to live in the world and not belong to the world. But then it comes, this one precious statement. It begins a section here in James's letter that someone has called the, the gospel according to James. But, he says, he gives more grace. It is the foundation that we stand upon today. 
It's the culmination for James of another theme that's been going on in this letter. The the father's nature is to give. He loves to give. He gives good gifts. He gives generously to all without reproach, James says. It is who he is. He gives and he gives and he gives again. And church, he has already given all to us in Christ. Our savior, our redeemer, our friend. We sing another song here. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. We've been given all in him. And yet, James says, he gives more grace. This is the comfort that James has for wavering Christians that they are to have as they step into repentance. And it's what he's calling us to today as well. But we see in verse 6 in this passage a qualifier a qualifier to the stepping into this grace, a warning and a promise, a promise actually that is conditional. James is a loving pastor and loving pastors warn and they encourage, they rebuke and they point people to the faithfulness of God, to the promises of scripture that are unshakable and unchanging from his word. That's what James does now as he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. In verse 6 he says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We must first understand this warning. See this warning. It's lovingly given for us to heed. God opposes the proud. Think about that for a minute. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, Today... I'm going toe-to-toe with God to see who comes out the winner. God, get in the ring with me and see how you fare. Go ahead, God, do your worst to me today. No one says that in sober mind. And yet James is saying when you harbor pride in your life, when you act and speak and live your life in the vanity of that pride, you make yourself an enemy of God. God sets himself against you to frustrate you, to tear down the towers that you build. We have to heed this warning and then cling to this promise. But he gives grace to the humble. It's a conditional promise. Now, I scratched my head a little bit this week as I was studying, and maybe you're scratching your head now, and you say, I thought that grace was unconditional. Isn't God's love unconditional to us? For sure, it is. When we speak about his, his um, unconditional election of us, there's nothing in, in us that would cause God to choose to save us, to make us, us his children. His adoption is unconditional. His justification is not based upon what we do, but upon what Christ has done for us. But as we live as the children of God, James is saying that there are experiences of the grace of God that are promised to us upon condition. Kent Hughes goes on to make the point about this never-ending supply of water cascading down Niagara. He speaks of the gravity of grace. Listen to these words. I think there's a slide for this as well, so you can follow along. Just as the waters of Niagara roll over and fall and plunge down to make a river below, and just as that river flows ever down to the even lower ranges of its course, then glides to still more low-lying areas where it brings life and growth. So it is with God's grace. Grace's gravity carries it to the lowly in heart where it brings life and blessing. 
Grace goes to the humble. The unbowed soul, standing proudly before God, receives no benefit from God's falling grace. It may descend upon him, but, but it does not penetrate and drips away like rain from a statue. But the soul lying humbly before God is immersed and even swims in a sea of grace. So while there is always more grace, it is reserved for the lowly, the humble. And James paints a picture in this passage of what humility looks like. The humility that positions the self under the waterfall of God's grace. Our outline today will be simple, just walking through these verses, what humility means under four organizing words. Number one, humility means submitting. Humility means submitting. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves to God. Now submit is not a word that our world wants anything to do with. The world's message is this, be suspicious of authority, trust yourself, don't play to anyone else's tune. Know what you want and go after it. And if you say to somebody in the world that your life is the life lived out in submission, the picture in the world is that of maybe a, a prison camp. That's what you're living in. Prisoners submit, don't they? They've given up on freedom and resistance and they passively obey. But that's not how the Bible sees it. The word submit in the New Testament is different to that. It means literally to arrange under, to organize under. It certainly recognizes um, position. I am under, under authority. That's how I live out my life. I'm under the authority of a king. I'm under the authority of Christ. But it speaks not merely of giving up resistance to him, but of active and eager enlistment into his cause. Submission means obedience. Obedience to orders, but that obedience flows from a conscious desire to have my life, my affairs, my relationships ordered under the good will of my Father. So submission is trust. His will is good. His commands are life-giving. His word has my full and eager attention. That's what submission means. Listen to this heart of submission in Psalm 119, the heart of the psalmist, verses 10 to 16. Is this true of you today? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The promise is made in Scripture that all things have been put under subjection to Christ, that all things are being put under his feet. And that's the, the progression of all of history. Redemptive history is heading to this one point, all things in submission to Christ. So there are some who do not bow right now, but who will one day bow. They will bow one day as captors, prisoners of war. But for the humble, for the children of God, submission Christ's reign is a, a welcome reign. It's the life filled with grace. 
Is the psalmist's experience your experience? Many people call themselves Christians who do not truly order their lives joyfully under the reign of Christ. They don't really organize their lives under Him. Many people just see religion really as a a safety net, maybe fire insurance for when they die. Or they enthrone self and see faith as a way to have God rubber stamp the things that they want to do, their goals and their dreams, their whole systems of theology and whole churches that seem to take this assert yourself attitude of the world to heart. Lay claim to that grace, lay claim to favor while all the while you're truly pursuing your own passions and desires. No, says James, grace is for the humble. What is your will, Father? I want to do your will. Secondly, humility means resisting. Resisting. The second part of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I find that language quite amazing. The devil's fleeing in response to my resisting. Because resisting is a defensive word, isn't it? It's a, it's a defensive word. It's not the same as go on the attack or overcome by power. Resisting is what the weaker side does. It's why the conqueror comes in and says, resistance is futile. But it fits, doesn't it? You know the truth of the matter. You know the fact that you are are weaker. Maybe this is your daily experience. I'm not as smart as the enemy is. And I always feel like I'm stumbling under the barrage of his attacks. I don't know why, but my mind is feeble. And he lies, and his lies always seem to penetrate my heart and mind so easily. But then this promise, it's a promise inordinate to our responsibility. Because victory doesn't come by our strength or our might. It comes just as we resist because our God is faithful. So what does it mean? What does it mean to resist? Firstly, I don't think it's a mistake that James has said right after he says submit to God. He says resist the enemy. Submission and resistance go hand in hand. Consider this this command in the light of the context here in this letter. Remember, James has been speaking about selfish passions giving rise to relational troubles in the church. And he had said in chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, he says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Then he calls us to wisdom that's from above. So resisting the devil means this, it means resisting demonically inspired wisdom of the world. The world's way of living that is not in submission to God, not ordering life under his authority. Submission is a matter of allegiance and resistance is the same. It's refusing the advances of a different ruler, of another lover. Sam Albury puts it this way, in his commentary, the highest form of resistance to the devil is to submit all that we are to our true king. Nothing will cause greater upset to the devil's schemes than our willing, joyful submission to God. As we submit to God, we by definition resist the devil. And we can only resist the devil as we submit to God. So resistance of the enemy is cultivating a trust in our king. Secondly, in terms of 
help to understand what it means to resist the devil, I'd like to draw your attention to another passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, the, 1 Peter 5, there's this section in, in 1 Peter so strikingly similar to our passage here today that many have said they must have had a common source, James and Peter. They must have had a common tradition that they were drawing on when they wrote these messages. And I say, yes, the, the brothers walked the same ground as Jesus, right? 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then he quotes Proverbs 3 as well. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then Peter says this in verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So what is the language of resistance there in that passage? It's the language of awareness, defense, caution. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be firm. Not in your strength, be firm in your faith. We don't approach the battle against the enemy with pride in ourselves, but with faith in Christ. And Paul would agree with that, right? Satan is the one who does the shooting of the arrows. What do we do? We hide. We hide behind the shield of faith that we've been given. Paul would even argue that resisting means fleeing. Resisting is about the direction that your heart goes. Hearts that fly from sin and to refuge in Christ. Again and again and again, Paul uses the word flee in his letters. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Resisting the devil means fleeing, and it means fleeing to Christ, to the one who is our safe refuge, the one who is our strong king, and the one who is our great treasure overall. And what a comfort this passage gives to us. To those of you who know daily the temptation that comes as you try to walk your Christian life, what a comfort this is, even from your position of weakness, when all that you do is stand, all that you do is watch, all that you do is cling to the shield of faith. The promise is this, he will flee from you, that he will turn tail and flee Why? Because you're amazing? No, because God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Number three, humility means drawing near. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Away from sin, away from Satan, away from the wisdom of the world, I draw near to my Father, foul out of the fountain fly, to my God. Again, Kent Hughes says this, there are two views 
which the Christian ought to cultivate with all that he has. Two views that the Christian ought to cultivate with all that he has. The devil's back and the face of God. As we read this verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If we were completely honest with ourselves, we would like to reverse the order, wouldn't we? Draw near to me, God, and I'll draw near to you. Or as Alec Matia puts it in his commentary, we want the promise to come before the command. We want the promise before the command. Right? Life is so distracting and busy. If only God made it easy for me to, to meet with him in his word and easy for me to pray. If only my trial didn't make it so difficult to come to him in prayer. If only my disappointments didn't overwhelm my heart and sap my energy. I wouldn't be a ship tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves if the winds and the waves weren't so strong in my life. If only the world system and the wisdom of the world wasn't so alluring. If only my sinful desires weren't so strong and yet some for some reason, God sees fit not to remove our struggle, to leave us in our struggle. He sees fit not to make the seas calm. That's because he knows that his system is better. His way is better for our good and his glory in the humbling of the Christian. And so the peace that surpasses understanding is for those who do the hard work of casting all their anxieties on him, who bring to him their request with thanksgiving and worship. The blessing of fellowship comes to those who carve out time to spend with the Lord in prayer and in the word. It comes to those who get out of bed and don't stay at home, but come and join their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in worship. Comfort comes to those who bring their disappointments to him and who hold those disappointments up in the light of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Victory comes to those who flee to him in their temptation. Restoration comes to those who cry out to him and confess to him their sins after their stumbling because grace is given to the humble. And just think about what James is saying in this passage. After the, the section of the letter that we've been in, after having just called them, you adulterous people, the people who say they love him, but who daily are pursuing friendship with the world. Think about this promise. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. We don't grasp the depths the immensity of his grace, the wonderful character of this God. He is the God of infinite glory and holiness, who therefore is infinitely insulted and offended by the sin that we so often shrug our shoulders at. But through the infinitely valuable sacrifice of his son, the wrath of God is eternally satisfied for the believer in Christ. And at the end of our wandering, at the end of every, every time our hearts go astray, is this God waiting with open arms. It's his good pleasure to draw near, to welcome, to embrace. It was while longing to eat the food of the pigsty that the prodigal son had to acknowledge a truth about himself the terrible results of his pride and what that pride had caused in his life. 
the truth he knows that he deserves nothing from his father. He deserves nothing. But he humbles himself. I'd rather be a slave in his house than live another minute in this world. And so he goes home to his father, a beggar. I'll beg for the place of a servant. He doesn't even get near to the house before he sees his father sprinting in the distance to come to him and to meet with him and embrace him. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. What a promise. Humility means knowing with our hearts, with all our hearts, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And humility means loving that reward above everything else. Finally, number four, humility means repenting, repenting. James's letter, I believe, is really hitting a crescendo at this moment. Remember, he began by helping the church think about how they were to suffer well and face the trials that they were facing. But right even from the beginning of the letter, there's this hint that there is trouble in the camp. James invites them to draw near to God in trial, seeking wisdom, asking in faith. But even in the beginning, he gives this warning because he knows their heart. In James 1, 6 to 8, he says, But let this one who asks, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. It's a word that James now repeats in chapter 4 in this passage, unstable in all his ways. And James has addressed one symptom after another of this double-mindedness, building in urgency to this call, finally, this call to repentance where he says to the church, enough, now is the time to return. And the message of this text is that there is hope even for this person. Even for this double-minded, this lethargic, distracted, inconsistent Christian, no matter our state, there is still hope for revival. And the path to revival is in repentance, in returning to the Lord. So he says in verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your hands and your hearts, it must always be both. They must always go together. There can be no such thing as a change in behavior if you haven't dealt with the heart attitudes that you have in opposition to God. And there can be no change in heart attitude, no true change without a resulting change in conduct. When we stray in one, we always stray in both. So James says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Is the Glorious 24th Psalm in mind as he says these things. Is this the heartbeat of his call? Listen to the, the words of David here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Church, that's where we want to be, isn't it? 
I want to be on his holy hill with my God. Who do we want to be? Not the generation of minimal effort and commitment. Not the generation of inconsistency and friendship with the world. Not the generation of phony mountaintop experience that is detached and divorced from the substance of daily turning, daily clinging, daily reordering, reordering of our lives in submission to him. We want to be this generation, the generation who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. And if that's who we want to be, we take sin seriously. Do we revolt against it? Do we mortify it? Do we get up and chase the foxes out of the garden that destroy the fruit of righteousness in our our lives and in the church? James won't stop. He's using, if he's using the language of cultic purity in verse 8, he echoes the prophets in verse 9. He says to us, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, James is not saying that we always have to be a grim, dour, sober bunch. He's not denouncing laughter of all kind. The laughter that James is speaking of here is the nonchalant Indifference of the world towards their sin. Every day lived carefree. Devil may care. I'll pursue what I want to pursue and do what I want to do. I remember a radio interview with, um, you might not know him down here in KZN, but with Jeremy Mansfield. He was a popular radio host in Johannesburg. And he was interviewed at the end of his time on 947 or Haarfeld Stereo. Now, Mansfield was a man who laughed a lot, always spoke his mind, and he had no trouble upsetting people on radio and apparently no trouble upsetting people off radio as well. And the interview came to this moment of reflection on his somewhat volatile career, and he said, he said these words, and this was his motto in life. He said, I live without regrets. I live without regrets. Not that he was careful to guard his tongue and didn't have anything to regret, but just that he refused to be bothered by the fallout of his actions, of his speech. He chose the take me as I come attitude that's so common in the world. I'm not going to be slowed down by pricks in my conscience. I'll live flat out. I'll pursue what I want to pursue. And at the end of the day, in the words of Sinatra, I'll say I did it my way. That devil may care, laughter of the world will come to an end. Right? In his commentary, Doug Moo points this out. Everybody is going to mourn eventually. We will all mourn eventually. For some, it will be on judgment day. When they see finally their spiritual state in the light of Christ. But there's a promise for those who are humble who mourn today, mourn today before it is too late. Jeremiah 31, 13, I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so James will now bookend his call to repentance in verse 10. He says to us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We've seen throughout this passage that the order has been clear. The promise follows the command. God gives grace to the humble. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Grace flows down to God's people like water to the lowest point so that the only way up in our lives is down. But does this mean today that the hope lies in ourselves? Is humility, church, something that we are just to be better at? To achieve in our own strength? Is it a character trait we manufacture by the sweat of our brow? The Bible and this passage certainly call for self-humbling. Humble yourselves before the Lord. But is the self then to be praised for humility? No, because even now we are not left alone in this. He gives more grace. This is the wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Church, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He has given us his spirit, the spirit who is among us right now, convicting of sin, who presses home to our hearts in the midst of our trials, the sweet, sweet truth about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And it's even grace that has led the church that James is writing to to this point. The same as it was the grace of God that led the church Peter was writing to to the same point when he gave the same command. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The call to the church to humble itself. In both of these situations, God is humbling the church that they might humble themselves. In one Peter, that humbling came from without. It was through persecution that the church was facing. Even that, a tool in God's hand. How is the church going to respond to this humbling? With self-exaltation? Or will they turn to God? And Peter says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. In James, the trial was from without, but more it seems the trial came from within. Inconsistencies. Unholy passions at war within them. Quarrels and fights in the church to say to the church, you're not as great as you thought you were. There's some trouble in your hearts. It's God humbling the church. It's his humbling hand, even in the midst of these quarrels and fights. How wonderful the truth of this passage, that despite all that has gone on, despite all that they have broken by their pride, God's hand has led them to this point of humbling, not for the purposes of setting the church adrift or being cut off or separated, but for this one purpose, the same purpose. He does everything in the life of the believer. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you, church. God disciplines the children he loves. How have you been humbled recently in your life? How has God maybe been whittling away at your pride, even bringing you low? Church, how have we been humbled by our God in the last couple years? What an opportunity we have. What an opportunity today for repentance, to cry out for mercy. For the goodness of God to bring fruit and life and joy and peace. May we not double down on our pride. Brush off this call to repentance and continue on doing it our own way. 
May we not seek to avoid his piercing gaze this morning or fail to trust the promise he gives. May we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and mourn our sin and resist our enemy and draw near to our Father in faith. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or as Peter puts it, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Father, with our our hearts bowed before you in this moment, we want to bring our request to you with thanksgiving. Lord, individually, myself and for those who agree in heart, even the trouble that we've been facing, the trials that you've allowed In our lives, we thank you. We thank you that you don't set us adrift in the world to pursue our own passions, to live in the the vanity of our pride. We thank you that you get our attention. We thank you that you are faithful and that you are waiting with open arms. As a church, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you have been humbling us. And we desire to draw near to you. Father, I pray that you would do a work in your church through the power of your spirit. That you would continue to bring conviction of sin. We want to see revival. Revival of repentance that leads to a revival of the knowledge of you. That our church would be a city on a hill. That we would be light. That we would be salt in the world. That you would give us a passion for those billions who are dying without hearing your name. Oh Lord, continue to humble us. We choose that humbling. We choose the trial. We choose pain. We choose discomfort if it means that we will be closer to you. So do what you have to do, we pray. And Lord, I I pray for those in the room whose hearts might not be bowed to you. We pray for a miracle of your grace that you would humble, that you might exalt. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.